and we're back for another week. This is Dennis. I am your host, and this is the Blue Corner. This week is something different. He, um, uh, our guest, isn't necessarily a fighter, um, but I do believe he has a little bit of fighting uh, experience. Uh, he definitely has a little bit of a background from what I've seen and read. Um, but look, he's he's. I was going to say babysitter to the stars, but that's Bert Watson. Uh, but he definitely has a good grasp of what it takes to be a combat athlete. And when it comes to uh, athletes here, in, especially in Sydney, Australia, um, he's probably dealt with most of them. Um, he's the, the founder, the head coach, the owner of Ethos Performance, um, I believe now in Silverwater. Um, and yeah, he goes by the name of Mia Alni. I hope I pronounced that correctly. But how have you been? How has 2021 been treating you thus far? 2021 has been awesome. We're already on route for two world title campaigns. We just had one over the weekend with, of course, Ebony Bridges. Unfortunately, didn't get the win, but she absolutely magnified women's boxing around the world. And she's um, gained herself a lot more coverage and really showed uh, the, the highlights of women's boxing, what female athletes are capable of, which was awesome to see her own social media platform has just absolutely gone through the roof which is awesome to see and of course now we're um, getting ready for mr cambosis versus lopez which i'm very very excited and nervous for now i wasn't actually going to bring up ebony bridges but i'm glad that you did like did you i i have to and be honest about it um i don't even think ebony watches this but she might um did you wake up at 5 a.m in the morning to watch that or did did you watch the replays afterwards i had to watch the replays because over the weekend i went off road off the grid camping so i had no reception um it was pretty much me a hot water system some fire and my dog so yeah, didn't watch the fight live, watched the replay, and look, from what I can tell, it was a very close fight. She um, she conceded a, a head blow that caused her eye to swell up, essentially couldn't see out of the eye for the last couple of rounds, which from what I can see and what I've been told changed the fight, definitely. I wouldn't be surprised if they do a rematch, but nonetheless, I'm really excited for what Ebony's going to do next. I think she has a lot more leverage now with Matchroom and with with the UK boxing scene because they know, A, she can sell and get eyes on the sport, but also she can fight. And I totally agree. I, I, I keep telling people I actually had that fight 4-4 um, at the end of eight. Like I, I literally thought it was kind of split uh, for the first eight, but I do feel like the, la the last two she kind of dropped. And look, that have you spoken to her since? Yeah, of course, of course. Is there some serious damage to no, that eye? No, it's okay. It's A lot of it was fluid. Um, she's been cleared by the doc, so I mean, I can't say exactly when, but she definitely is already in negotiations for her next fight, which will most likely be overseas also. But on to the refing with um, with UK and Australian fights. I think it's it's quite disgusting how Australian boxers get scored by the referees overseas. Um, when Cambosis for Selby in his last fight, he absolutely schooled Lee Selby. There, there was no competition. But if you were looking at the referee scorecards, they almost they gave it a split decision. So I definitely think that Australians going over there, we get a little bit mistreated in terms of fair fair judging. But I guess that's the disadvantage of going away and going to the home turf of someone else. Definitely think the same thing happened with Ebony. She was doing really well, but a lot of the times, both the referees and the commentators, they tend to highlight their their hometown favorite and and obviously not 
with the eyes on the, the foreigner. And that's that's a case across all combat sports. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, we, we talk about that in MMA as well where, um, you know, people go into en- enemy territory and it's really like you've got to put that person out otherwise the chances of you actually picking up that fight is is quite low. Uh, not, not that it hasn't been close. done, right? If it's close, exactly. And, and that irritates me because a lot of people also talk about with title fights, right? They always say... You know, uh, in order to to be the champion, you have to beat the champion. And I hate that. I really do. And I get where it comes from because, once again, if it's close, most judges will give it the benefit to the the current champ. Um, But I always say that fight should literally be two people fighting for the belt. Like, I kind of feel like when they walk in, there is no champion. You're both fighting for that one belt, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, it was an interesting one. How, how do you feel like she went? Because I know like obviously leading up to the uh, event, there was a lot of smack talk about how she promotes, I guess, her image and also the the, the landscape of women's boxing because obviously uh, her her opponent wasn't a big fan of, of her uh, attire for, for, um, for, weigh-ins for the weigh-ins um, where, you know, Ebony is quite proud of, and look, she should, right? But uh She's quite proud of, of who she is and, and how she looks. And she also understands, I guess, the marketing side of it. Um, how do you feel that all plays for her? So I think if you, if you look at Ebony's objective with doing those things, do they become fruitful for her? I think the answer is yes. She gets eyes on the sport. She gets eyes on herself, opens up more platforms for herself in doing so. And that's her objective. She had more, um, more eyes probably on the way and then any other athlete for the event. Does she look good? Yes. Should she use that to her advantage? Why not? I think female athletes around the world do it. Paige Van Zandt does it in the UFC. Um, if it means they make more money than what they're probably making their fights from sponsorships and other opportunities, yeah, go for it. Um, it's a business at the end of the day. There's a lot of politics that comes with all sorts of sports, particularly in combat sports. So I think if Ebony can leverage her own talents and her understanding of the, the scene, Go for it. At the end of the day, Dennis, she knows how to fight and she put on a heck of a, of a fight on the night. I, de- I definitely agree. Like I, I, I was actually in a, in a clubhouse chat while that was happening and I was like, I was telling people to put a cheeky little bet on her. I mean, the odds were crazy. She was like a, a yeah. $6 kind of underdog. Like, And as I said, until that eighth round, I was like, hey, listen, we could, we could seriously be making some money of this. Like... Uh, uh, yeah, she 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 really showed. And look, I, that's the and to your point, like that's the only fight I watched on that card because obviously it was at, at the same time as the UFC event. Yeah. Because uh, so I ended up staying up, you know, watching that from one a.m. till eight a.m. And as I said, quickly switching across for Ebony's fight at five a.m. So I actually did watch it live. And and um, so yeah, to your point, I hundred percent like that was the only kind of fight that really interests me on that card. Um, but man, she's, she's a bit of a marketing genius, especially for a math teacher, right? I think she did a great job. She showed, she earned a lot of respect for herself from the fight community worldwide. Um, and I think, that, look, there was rightfully so some hesitation with people watching her for this fight. It was a massive step up in competition, in the venue, in everything that was that was on the line. And I think she roasted a task. She showed that she has a lot of you know, persistence, a lot of determination. She actually has a lot of skill that a lot of people probably hadn't seen in some of her fights here in Sydney. So I think all things considered, she did a great job. And I think we'll see even more and better things from her in her next fight. 
and only because obviously your 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 part of it is the strength and conditioning uh, side of, uh, of of things. Like, how hard does she really hit? Look, we we we've mucked around at the gym, and I've had a I've had her hit me in the rib a few times. She hits hard. She um she knows how to sit on her punches. She has a very good coach, and you know, like I said, I think if the if the eye hadn't bothered her so much in the fight, I was really interested to see how that would have gone. I think she could definitely beat Shannon. Oh, 100%. I wouldn't even debate that. So, and, and I guess with her work ethic, I mean, how does she balance that? Because, I mean, I do see she's very, you know, uh, active on the socials. She's very active in, in all the media kind of stuff. As I said, she's a math teacher. Then she's also got, I guess, training with yourself and I, I think the Bondi Boxing Club and stuff like that. But like, when it comes to like, uh, I, I, I guess her da- day in day out, what what what's her kind of work ethic like? So, to sacrifice for boxing, she pulled away from being a full time teacher. Um, so she's more part time casual now to put more eggs in the basket of her boxing. Um, her head coach is Arnell at a Baratilla boxing gym. So she spends a lot of time with him, does a lot of rounds there. But as you know, Dennis, the fight scene in Sydney is quite small. So it requires athletes to travel around and spar with different athletes, different gyms. So she obviously does a lot of that also. And and, and for you, like what's what's the um, relationship like with, with coaches? Like, is it a separate field altogether? Like when they come to you or... Or when, I guess, especially in fight camps and stuff, do you work very closely with the coaches? Um, or is it just a totally set, like she goes to one coach, obviously, to to work the game plan, to work the striking, to work all of that, and then comes to you? Or is it a very cross kind of uh, uh, referenced, uh, I don't know what what the word for it is, but you know what I'm saying. I do. I think it's a, it's a great question. So it never should be completely separate in terms of the communication between different departments, Right. In saying that, we don't teach Ebony any of her boxing, not her boxing coach. She has a boxing coach. And that goes with all of the athletes that we work with at Ethos, whether you're a judo athlete, a boxing athlete, mixed martial artist, jiu-jitsu practitioner, whatever it is, they normally have their own skills team that they work with. And we look after their strength and conditioning component of their training. In saying that, one of the key things that I think we do very well is we establish a good schedule with our athletes and we try to touch base with their technical coaches to get an idea of what their week looks like in the gym because that directly affects how we schedule things for them in our gym and what sort of loads we apply on that person, what sort of programming we give that person, how we change things up, whether they're in camp, out of camp. So there's, there's a, there's a, there are so many factors that we consider when we're working with an athlete. And definitely one of them is communicating with the skills team. I need to know when Ebony's sparring. I need to know how hard her sparring is going to be. I need to know when she's got scheduled periods where her sessions aren't going to be as hard. I might manipulate that time period to get something that I want in terms of a physical quality that we've identified that she needs to work on. So I think paramount between you know all, all, all coaches on the team or the whole team is communication, definitely. And when it comes to like rest and recovery, is that a big thing for you too? And is that something, I guess, you schedule in or is that something you play by ear on how that athlete is doing? So one of the, we we discuss it with our athletes all the time. A lot of it, I think, is education. You know, you've, you've competed yourself, Dennis, and you understand that combat athletes, there's a certain mentality of, I always need to work harder. And the more I do, equates to the more prepared that I am. 
But obviously, we can begin to appreciate that that's not always the case most of the time. So the first thing we do, like I said, is we touch base with our athletes and we work on a schedule for them. That schedule in itself is one strategy to allow optimal recovery in between sessions, right? So if I've got sparring in the evening, I'm not going to do the hardest conditioning session with the athlete six hours before that. It's counterintuitive to the fact that they're sparring later in the evening. So I'd probably schedule the session to allow some sort of recovery in the morning so they can perform the best in the evening. We understand as strength and conditioning coaches that the most important thing ultimately is the athlete's skills training, correct? They need to be able to fight and to be able to do that as best as they can. So one strategy that we look at for recovery is scheduling the loads, looking at their week and what their week looks like. And then also, yes, depending on the diligence of the athlete, we discuss you know, what sort of things have you put in place for your recovery? Obviously, the two main things that we'll look at is their nutrition and then obviously their sleep quality. With nutrition, we, we definitely give general advice. We've got lots of good resources that we share with them, but we're also very fortunate to have worked with the team at the Fight Dietitian for the last couple of years. Um, I work with Jordan Sullivan quite closely. We've done you know several UFC camps together. We've done several domestic title fights and fights together, boxing, MMA, jiu-jitsu, We've done a lot of things together. Um, so we're pretty close. We speak frequently. And a lot of the times when we've done as much as we can for one of our fighters, we pass them on to the guys at the fight dietitian so they can get bloods done, DEXA scans, personalized diets. We connect them with some of our meal prep companies that we work with. So, I mean, that's extending to one of the broader goals that I always had for Ethos which was to be almost a one-stop shop for a fighter. It was very clear that it was always initially focusing on the fighter. And obviously th that explains why we've worked with so many fighters over the last couple of years. And, and just to give people an idea, I mean, I mentioned it in the, in the uh, intro, you do pretty much work with the who's who, especially in Sydney. Um, but like just to give people an idea, and, and this isn't obviously a name drop, but it kind of is, like who are some of the, the athletes that you're working with currently? Um, look, I'm very grateful to work with a lot of high quality athletes and they trust us with their preparation. People like Tai Tuivasa, Tyson Pedro, George Cambosis, Arlene Blenkow. Um, you know, we, we liaise with um, Josh Colabau and his coach. So, I've, you know, Dara Foley, so many good domestic boxers, up and coming guys, young guys, work with multiple jujitsu athletes. We've got a really good team. We've got female athletes on the national judo team. So yeah, you know, our team works with a, a lot of athletes spanning combat sports, not just mixed martial arts. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool. I, I, I love what I do and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the quality of athletes that I work with. And you, you mentioned Tai Tuivasa. I have to ask you, is he a character? Like, just like, because I mean, like the stuff he put, puts on socials, like sometimes I'm like, and, and I've said this and look, I, I love Tai Tuivasa, but sometimes I feel like he doesn't even take this really serious. And I, you'll probably prove me wrong here, but I've always said like, if that guy took himself serious, like I, I think he could be a world title holder, right? Like I, to be honest with you, I think he could even drop a weight class, but I, I guess this is where I'm asking. Like, uh, there's a few things in there that I'll touch on. Uh, yeah. So it, it, does he take himself serious? Is he the kind of party boy that we all know him because of the shoey and, and things like that? Like once he, once he steps into that gym, like how serious does he actually take this sport? Okay. So a Ty definitely could not be like heavyweight. He's, he's a heavyweight fighter. 
Definitely. You you don't think he's got enough weight to lose? Like once once oh, he's, a, he's a big guy, man. Like look, he could probably tax himself and really make light heavier, but his structure, his structure is heavyweight. If anything, our goals over time will be body composition at heavyweight. So that's the that's the first thing. Second thing, Dennis, I think as with anything, social media always has an element of smoke and mirrors. What you always see isn't what the reality always is, right? So I think uh, Ty plays a smart game as showing the public what they want to see and not necessarily what's always happening. Uh, Ty is a surprisingly very, very capable athlete physically. When he comes into the gym and I teach him new things and working on things, I'm always really, really, really surprised by how he moves, how quickly he picks things up, listens really well. And you have to remember, as a heavyweight, he's very young. Um, I think Ty's only 28 years old. So he's the same age as me. As a heavyweight, that's very young to have already had so many fights in the UFC. I think the, the setbacks he had most recently before his most recent two wins, I think they've been great for him because... He's had some losses early in his career against very, very, very reputable names. You know, having a loss on your record to Junior Dos Santos is not, not a, there's no lack of admiration in that. So I think Ty works extremely hard when he needs to. Now, does he like to do some of the things we see on social media? I think that's Ty. Um, that's who he is. That's his character. With all the athletes that I work with, Dennis, I think people like yourself, Ebony, Cambosis, Ty, what they show on socials is that that's who they are. And I think that's why when they fight, there's no there's no second guessing that, that that's the character you see. They just bring it to the to the show also. George on social media plays a very strict person, diligent, trains all the time. There is no mucking around with him, very, very focused. He has that sort of alias of being that Spartan, that warrior. That's George. <laughs> when he comes into the gym, there's an energy that he brings. That's George. Um, Ty, he has a joke around. That's the character he brings. So, yeah, definitely. I think... Um, and look, uh, what, what I mean, like, he, he, he definitely seems like a fun guy to be around. 100%. Like 100%. And that's what I'm saying. I love him for that. Where I'm getting at is, and as you said, the losses he's had, they're not, they're not bad losses. Like, he's, he's fighting top caliber guys. But I, I guess, like... When, when, when you see him post like stuff waking up at the hotel room and wet in the bed and stuff like that kind of thing. And I'm just like, like, I don't know, has he ever turned up, I guess, hung over to, to training or is it like more show? And he is, I just think like if he was to really apply, apply, as I said, I, I, I could honestly say he could potentially be a world champion. Like that's where I see, I kind of see him here right now. And I go, a lot of that is natural talent and obviously hard work as well. But I just feel like, and as I said, I don't know. It could just be for show. Maybe he is like a straight, kind of a straighty 180 and he's not really that party boy. But I just feel like, yeah, I, I really have high hopes for him, if that makes sense. Like, I'm not trying to badmouth him. I'm saying like, I, 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 I see him as such a good talent and I would love to see him hold that belt, if that makes sense. I think I've known Ty for a few years now and I've worked with him for a few years. So from early days working with him to the athlete that he is now, there have been tremendous leaps in his approach and his professionalism. So I think if we continue to see the same trend moving forward, then yes, I do think he will step into being a more mature athlete as he gets older, as he spends more time in the UFC and spends more time with professionals. So Ty, like Tyson, you know, he, he didn't have 15 professional fights 
an amateur career before they made it to the UFC. They were such good prospects in Australia. They kind of learning while they're in the UFC now. So while that's a blessing and a curse, it's the cards that they've been dealt and they've had to work with that. So I think Tyson had two, two professional fights during him working in the military. And then he got signed to the UFC and he's fighting guys like OSP, Elia Latifi, Shogun, and he's still figuring out. He's still learning, learning things and finding out who his camp is and doing weight cuts and all these things. You look at a lot of the, the track records of some of the younger guys coming up now. You've got guys having 10 amateur MMA fights, then they turn professional. They have you know five to six, seven, eight professional fights. Then they have their international break. That's a big apprenticeship to have before you get the job. So with people like Ty and Tyson, they didn't really get that. So I think giving them some more time to, to find their team, to, to get the right habits going is definitely something that will become fruitful for them. So I think Ty, he's shown in the last two fights, good camps, good preparation, has gone in, got the job done. And I think we're going to continue to see him do that better and better each time. And where he is he at the moment? Because it he's seems, in Sydney. Oh, he is. Because yeah. I thought like he was like in Dubai and he's been stuck in Dubai this whole time. No, like no, no, I no. So he, he after he he beat his last opponent after he got the first round finish, he came back here, did quarantine. Now he's in Sydney with his um with his son. Okay, nice, yeah. nice. And yeah, as as you said, when I had Arlene on 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 the podcast as well, she spoke about the same exact same situation. She was like, you know what? I was learning on the job, yep. right? Like she really didn't have that amateur, and even here, like it was hard for her to find fights. So it was really finding yeah, it's you still hard, right? And and it was really a matter of her finding her feet on the job, which yep. is which is kind of tough. But look, let let's take it back to you. What what is your background? Because as I said, like I, I have read a few things that obviously I don't know, I I am if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I, I don't think you've had any pro fights, but I'm pretty sure you've had a few amateur fights yep. uh in the boxing, not yep. MMA. Yep. So yeah, what what is your background? Like where did your original like I guess um thirst for for combat sports come from? Look, it's so cliche, Dennis, and I almost don't even want to say it. I was at reading cinemas in Auburn with my little brother. I was playing soccer at the time. I watched the Never Back Down movie. That same night, I Googled MMA gyms in Sydney. That's honestly, I, I can't change that story. Um, I first started doing uh, any sort of combat sports training at Jin Wukun in the city. Czech Fire was the owner at the time. That was at Broadway. Um, I started doing that when I was 15. At the same time, I was training at CFS with uh, Mr. John Levin, who's still at the same location. Um, well actually he changed locations but his new location I also worked with him there um, then I transitioned to working with um, the wrestling coach who was at CFS more at the time his name is Mark Zafaniev he was working with Lenny who's also currently still the national coach for the Sydney uh, well, for the Australian wrestling team uh, then I spent time training at Seven Hills at Full Combat Centre with Shane Nix that's where I met people like um, Tyson and Ty but they had no idea who I was back then I was a young kid and they were kind of the, the the big boys in that area. So, yeah, I've um I met Rodney Williams, who's now at Blacktown PCYC. I work with some of Rodney's fighters. I took a real like to boxing because of Rodney, and then I had some amateur fights under Rodney and Blacktown PCYC later on. So, most recently, I just do some grappling. I do some wrestling and some jujitsu with some friends and some gyms. I'm not a serious competitor by any means. I think I um there's a clear point for me where I realized. I had more interest in helping fighters than being one. And I've said that before on previous podcasts too. And I'm happy I made that distinction because I think I have a lot to give to the combat sports community. And that ultimately is where my passion lies. 
Um, and I think that comes out in the work that we do at Ethos also. And, and where did that moment occur? Like, was it a point, like, were you ever thinking of becoming a pro fighter or did you, in your amateur kind yeah. of rankings, like go, you know what, there's something missing in this space and I feel like I can feel it. Like, oh, look, I, I um, during, at school, I really enjoyed the subjects that I was doing, like PDHP, et cetera. I was really good at those subjects. And I went into uni pretty early. So at 17, I was at uni. I turned 18 in my first year of uni. At that time, I was still doing amateur boxing and still doing some MMA training also at Boxing Works. So I just started really enjoying the, the science and the theory of what I was studying. And I found that in my spare time, instead of honing my skills, I was reading about topics related to the field, the field being the strength and conditioning field. So that was a, that was a big enough indicator for me to realize I want to give back here. And look, I think every story of every athlete, there are opportunities that find the athlete at the right time. Who knows, for whatever reasons, I don't think those opportunities found me at the right time. I think there were more lack of opportunities that found me than the, than the former. So, yeah, for me, the route of becoming a coach and working with fighters was something that just really, really caught my eye. And I've also said this before, at the time, I really couldn't find someone in Sydney that was doing the things that I wanted to do. The sort of place that I've created now, five years ago in Sydney, it didn't exist. I think now most combat athletes in Sydney, if you told them, hey, like, I want to you know, go and do some SNC somewhere and I'm a combat athlete, where, where should I go? I'd like to think that ethos comes up straight away. And that didn't exist back when I was you know, competing as an amateur athlete. And did you build um, ethos with combat sports in mind? Like what I'm, what I'm saying is like, did you kind of like, um, I guess, really nurture the combat field or is this just how it's panned out right now? No, Be I, look, <laughs> can we, can we swear on the podcast? Mate, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> okay. So I won't, I also won't swear too much. I think I, I realized that I had my interest in other sports weren't as profound. So I wasn't a massive, massive rugby league fan. I wasn't a massive AFL fan. I do like those sports. I like preparing athletes for those sports, but my personal background and the hole that I saw was combat sports. And so I wanted to fill that hole. I had obviously some existing connections in the combat space with the fact that I was competing and was around fight gyms. So I just started eating a lot of shit. And I did that for a couple of years to just get experience in the field. I spent a lot of time going overseas, learning from very, very, very respectable people in the industry. Um, and I, I just essentially started stacking my chips so I could have more leverage to bring to the table to work with more fighters. I think 2018, I had a big year in terms of started getting some good traction with a lot of fighters. But that's just more a testament to the same attitude that I've still got to working with fighters, which is... I just want, we just want to help combat athletes because we definitely realize that there's a space for it and there still is a space for it. It's great to see that there are more SNC coaches now applying their skills to combat sports. But yeah, it's been almost four, four years now, just over four years that I've solely focused on nurturing that space because I realized very early on that no one really cared. And in regards to uh, the people that you've learned from, like, like obviously coming into the space, have you got some clear mentors? Yeah, definitely. Look, again, I've said this before. I, I was at a conference speaking to um, the one of the guys who runs Play, which is a very respectable organization in the SNC space, and I asked that person for some some names that I could go and learn from. 
Because I, I, I can't remember what book it was, but I read that essentially find the people that are doing what you want to do and go and learn from those people. Those people in Sydney didn't exist. And that's the bottom line for me at the time. If there was someone doing what I was doing, I probably would be the guy learning from the person who owned that facility, but that didn't exist. So I went overseas to Denver, Colorado, which was my first major learning experience. And I spent time at Landau Performance. I learned a lot there. I established some very, very, very valuable networks there. Um, Lauren Landau is the owner of that gym. Um, there are mul multiple locations now, and I still consider him a very close friend of mine and a mentor. I can't really tell you the names of people that walk through his gym because I'd, I'd be here for a long time. Curtis Blades, TJ Dillashaw, Justin Gaethje, Neil Magny. Oh man, I'm probably doing a disservice. Drew Dobar, and it keeps going and going and going several different sports that they deal with but nonetheless i went there and i had a really good understanding of blending what i knew at the time and some other things related to combat sports physical preparation i made some good friends there and that opened up other pathways for me to just go and meet other people in the industry that are still doing really good things like some of the guys at the ufc performance institute so i went there i spent a week there met the president duncan french met some of the snc staff there met the physical rehab side met the dietitians there. So I think chasing further education in this space has always been something that I've been um, fond of. I've always wanted to do that. And I'll still continue to do that. Now I'm grateful that I've got a team around me that also want to do that. So it's not just me anymore. It's well beyond me now. I've got, you know, collectively four staff now and the team continues to grow. We've got a big location expansion that we're working on in the next one and a half years. So all things are looking great, but the mission hasn't really changed. We've got a satellite spot location that we just opened up in Mascot at Emergix Martial Arts. So we're trying to tailor to working with some more athletes in the East. And we're already skyrocketing there. We've got seven athletes on that group. So we, we understand that combat sports is growing and we want to be there to facilitate the growth and just, just elevate the standards in the industry. And you say you went to the UFC PI. How, how was that trip? And, and, and what do you like? Do you like what they're doing out there for, for the athletes? Yeah, I, I don't think anyone else is trying to do what they're trying to do. They've got a massive amount of funding behind them. They've got very, very you know, respectable professionals amongst all the staff at the PI in what they're doing in terms of data collection, data representation, the coaches there, the dietitians, they're all doing really good things. And even Jordan Sullivan, he spends a lot of time working with guys like Clint Wattenberg at the UFCPI. He's the head of dietetics. So they're all, they're, all, they're all very, very respectable scientists. They're practitioners. They're in the trenches every day doing the work. So I definitely think the UFCPI are doing great things. They've definitely broadened the, the appreciation for strength and conditioning in mixed martial arts. And I'd hope that that slowly transcends to other sports like boxing also. I think we still tend to see a bit of a cultural shift with boxing and MMA in terms of taking on SNC, but that's changing. It's changing really, really quickly. I think most fighters now, you'll see with social media, there's a greater respect for having a separate team that looks after strength and conditioning training, dietetics, nutrition, and then your skills coaches. And do you ever feel like, obviously, as you said, like it's everything under the one roof and, and earlier you said, obviously you do a lot with like Jordan Sullivan. Correct. Um, do you ever feel like looking further down the track that you might even combine 
what you guys do to have it under the same roof to kind of build like a PI in the same sort of manner? Because I mean, that's the one thing I really, I've been a couple of times and I really love that fact that people can train, then they can, they've got a physiotherapist there, they got this, and literally they can get it under the one roof, right? So do you ever see yourself heading down that direction? Yeah, look, I mean, it would be awesome to have the funding available immediately to do, to be able to do that. Um, I think Jordan, for example, a lot of his client base are international, domestic. He's got fighters from everywhere that work with him. So he's definitely established good systems that work abroad. In saying that, I don't necessarily think you need to have a dietitian on site to still get all the benefits of working with one. So, I mean, we see that firsthand. Jordan's in Brisbane most of the time, or he's in America prepping fighters, or he's in New Zealand. So there hasn't been any issues with us working with high quality teams despite the fact that they're not in Sydney. We've got a physiotherapist that works in our facility throughout the week. So that's definitely started to bridge that gap between, you know, rehab, return to performance and having good systems in place. We've got Athletes Nutrition Meals who looks after our meal prep. So we've, we've created good systems between dietitian, S&C coaches, physiotherapists for the combat athlete. I think long-term, definitely, we'd like to have a, a larger facility that houses more of those things. But I think definitely with time, that will happen and with some more funding over time. Right. And if I was to ask you just like quite straight out, um, what sets you apart from, say, any other strength and conditioning? Because, I mean, like there is a lot of strength and conditioning things out there, right? Yeah. But like, as I said, like you obviously attract a very high clientele which leads me to believe that you uh, I, I was going to come out and ask you what are you putting in the water is basically the question that i was going to ask you because like i'm like you're doing something different or right for these guys but in your personal opinion if i was to say what sets you apart from say and and don't get me wrong i don't want you to give up your trade secrets either but like what sets you apart from say some of these other str uh, strength and conditioning centers okay so if, if you were a fighter dentist and you had two teams or two professionals in front of you that you could work with, one of them had prepared 30 fights, 30 athletes fights. One of them had prepared over 600 over five years, ranging from guys having a debut to multiple world title campaigns. Who would you work with as a fighter? Well, you'd probably go to the one with more experience for sure, but you didn't start with all that experience. So you've started somewhere and something made right. these athletes gravitate towards you. And I don't think it's the experience because when you started, you didn't yes. have that experience or, or, or the amount of fighters. Like I know it's a trickle effect, but I'm just saying there's something that you do different. Yep. I, you won't be, you won't meet someone and everyone will probably test them at this for themselves. You won't, you won't meet someone who cares as much about the space as I do. Um, that comes across in how hard I work, how hard I've worked and how, uh, how hard I will continue to work. Um, I've been there as an athlete myself and I understand the holes that are present for the combat sports space, particularly for the strength and conditioning. And the good thing is, is now it's not just me anymore, Dennis. I've got coaches who all have a different set of skills. We've got a full-time sports scientist who's collecting data, trying to find trends in combat sports. And I believe we're probably the only place in Australia that's doing that full time. We work with over 80 fighters every week, every week, over 80. Our roster is massive from amateur all the way to the best in the world. When it first started out, the passion was the same. 
And I guess the, the sprinkle of luck that met me is, yes, there are more SNC coaches now, but I have all that more experience now. And the thing is, that speaks for itself. If we weren't doing things correctly, we wouldn't have the guys that are coming through the door come through the door. I think it, the, the proof is in the pudding. And that's not me, you know, hyping up myself. But I think our systems at Ethos for the fighter, you don't get that anywhere else. N no way. And in regards to having 80 uh, combat athletes come through the door every week, it, it, do you sometimes find that your time is spread too thin? Like, I know you say you have four staff with you, but I mean, even that, uh, 80 uh, divided by four is what, 20 each? Like, how, how, how does that all work? Do you, do you roster these guys on? Is it a matter that they can, it's an open door, they can come in whenever? Like, how, how does your whole system work in, in that yeah, regard? So, so our facility has opened hours, right? And don't get me wrong, I'll give you a, a quick rundown of the structure at Ethos. We don't only work with fighters. We've got rugby athletes that come in, we've got AFL athletes that come in, we've got soccer players that come in, guys that are playing at, you know, Youth Sydney FC, all the way to Division 1 in Sydney. We've got guys that in the NRL that come to us also. We work with a lot of physios that extend beyond combat sports. So our reach isn't just fighters. And it isn't just athletes either. When I was in, um, when I was at Landau Performance Tennis, one of the things I loved about that facility was you had these beasts of NFL players there. You had fighters training in another corner. Then you had kids. Then you had mums and dads. And that environment, it just captivated me. I thought it was so cool that everyone was treated the same. There were the same systems applied to everyone, but they were all just achieving different things. So that's what I've tried to emulate at Ethos. You can come in any morning, you have Tyson training, you have George training, then you have a 50 year old, you know, a woman training with one of our trainers. You have a kid training at the same time. You'll have so many different people all there just working towards a goal that's, 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 um, that's specific to them. So getting back to the athletes, our athletes are coming to our facility all get treated individually. They all get tested and assessed individually. They all get programmed for individually. And that's because we understand that none of our athletes are exactly the same, both as people and as their sport. I can't treat any of my amateur guys the same as some of the pro guys and vice versa. It wouldn't be fair to them. So our athletes come into the facility and what we do is we schedule them to come in at blocks of times that aren't as busy, right? So if someone right now joined the, joined the gym, they said, we want to train with you at 8 a.m. on a Monday. I'd say, look, that time slot is full. You need, here are some other time slots for you if you actually want to get coached effectively. So that's how we communicate to prospective athletes and to our team. At any given time, we've always got more than three staff on the floor. So we've never really had an issue of quality going out the window with more numbers. That's why we're continuously growing the team. And I have to ask, and, and only because I, I, I ask this of some of the bigger gyms as well, do you ever have to deal with like egos in the sense of, and I'm not asking you to call anyone out, no, but I'm just saying like, you know, you have multiple people in that same space. And I guess there's, there, there's this feeling sometimes that some people feel like whether they're higher up the rankings or whatever, but they, they f kind of feel like they should get a little more attention than the other. Do you, do you ever have to deal with those sort of situations? Dennis, absolutely zero. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why. I'm sure you can appreciate this. I had a, one of the rugby league guys that we work with, and he said, I love coming to your gym because of the environment. He said, everyone is just so down to earth, just doing their own thing. There's no egos. There's no, there's no um, disrespectful banter. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I get teased. I get laughed at. You know, that coach-athlete relationship definitely exists in the gym, and you want that. That's good. So I think our environment's awesome because 
combat sports, it tends to humble the athlete. They spend so much time working hard. You know, it, it's so it's so uh, demanding in contact. It's such a, you know, sympathetic sport. By that, I mean, it's always fight, fight, fight. I think it gets rid of the ego a lot of the time. And don't get me wrong, you see people's social media like George, you know, Cambosis, you're like, man, I, I can't be, I don't want to train around that guy. George comes into the gym, says hello to everyone, works his absolute ass off, says bye to everyone, and he goes home. And it's the same for Tyson, it's the same for Bam Bam, it doesn't really change. One of our female wrestlers recently, she started playing rugby league also, um, and she said, Mir, I can't believe the cultural shift in terms of playing on that team and you know, going to an MMA session. And I think that that's just because, like I said, combat sports tends to bring out certain, certain characteristics in a person that other sports just don't. And I think our environment, because we have so many fighters in there, it's just a very unique environment. And you mentioned before as well that every athlete, um, you kind of customize the product uh, program to them. And you were talking about football players and everything like that. Um, I'll try to keep it in the combat field. But like, how different is, say, and, and, I'm, and I'm not talking about athletes in specific. I'll, I'll, I'll try to group it a little bit. But like, how different is like a, a program, say, for a boxer to MMA or are they very similar? Okay. So there are certain concepts that strength ignition coaches need to need to understand and need to learn how to apply the differences is when and how you apply them and when you apply them so of course you look at sports like boxing and mixed martial arts they're completely separate sports so the first thing that you need to do is understand the differences between the sports you know the the profiles of those athletes you look at the times the the round times boxing's three minute rounds mma's five minute rounds that's a massive consideration if you're working with someone's energy systems if you're doing their conditioning training for example if you look at boxing the the absolute strength requirements aren't as important as they are for an mma athlete or a grappling based athlete so when we do our testing we tend to find that you know a lot of our boxers they have a higher rsi they tend to be more springy more powerful um, power definitely comes across as a very important quality for boxers and repeated power because if they're professionals and we're comparing professional against professional, the the boxing fight tends to obviously go a lot longer. If we've got a guy doing 12 threes, 36 minute fight compared to a title fight in mixed martial arts, it's 25 minutes. So there are definitely considerations that you have to take into place when working with different combat athletes. The overlying concepts are the same, it's your job as a practitioner to apply those to the athlete. And let me ask you as well with their training, is it a, a 12 month thing or do you, do you find, and, and cause I have this kind of debate with a few people all the time is like, you know, when you, when you talk about um, fighters taking fights on short notice and, and I kind of like explain to people like, listen, it's not like these guys are sitting on the sideline on the couch eating Cheetos until basically they got a fight signed up and then suddenly they're like, okay, we, we, we need to fight and we need to train now, right? So yeah. what, 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 is the, what is the kind of like uh, method with you? Is it more of a 12-month thing and then you change things once there is a fight camp? Um, and, and how does that fight camp operate? Like, is, there, like do you, is it the same, like, say, with sparring, which obviously you don't do, but is it the same kind of thing where you do have that moment of hard sparring and you taper off the closer you get? Or... Yeah, how, how does the whole scheduling in that sort of sense work? So, all really good questions. Uh, generally speaking, we have a, a testing battery we implement with all of our athletes. And the one of the things that we, we do from the start is educate our athletes on the fact that we want them to be year-round athletes. And that 
we don't want them to neglect their, their physical development until the fight's announced. They've got eight weeks and now we're supposedly getting prepared. I'm going to have this conversation just the other day with one of my athletes. And I told that person, I said, look, chances are if you think getting ready six weeks out is the right time, it's probably too late to actually develop any qualities, to actually uh, see any, any noticeable change. At that point, we should just be tapering, you know, having a peaking stage and then you, you're going to be fighting. So... Generally speaking, if someone doesn't have a fight announced, we're working on the qualities that we've identified that they need to work on. And we do that with some of our testing battery. So for example, if someone's force deficient, their biggest attribute to work on is producing amount of force and how, how much strength they have, then we'll spend time doing that until their fight's announced. Some of the times, the strategy doesn't change too much in fight camp either. And I say fight camp because you, you did the same thing and we understand what that means. So... The, the severity of the preparation, how much, you know, small details we change also depend on the stage of the athlete's career. So for example, Dennis, if I've got someone who's an amateur debut athlete, right? My, my strategy for that person is quite relaxed and I'm a bit more long-term in my approach. I'm not necessarily going to implement a peaking stage for that person and, you know, work up to this single event. The reality is if they're an amateur athlete, they're probably going to be competing in the next three to six weeks, ideally, in some sort of competition. Now, if you look at Cambosis' preparation, we knew he was going to be fighting Lopez in November, and we had a rough date. He told me, me, it's going to be around June. So from November, we started planning backwards. That's a six-month preparation. I knew George was going to be in Miami for his preparation. So we both started talking about communicating with the coach that's over there, putting things in place, having a schedule everyone was happy with. The reality is this is a fight that, you know, when George Tate has his fight, he might not fight again for a year. So the strategies are different, definitely based on the severity. Or I won't say the, the importance of the fight, but the severity of the fight. If this fight for George, it's make or break, right? It's life-changing. It's, it's an undisputed world title fight. One of our guys just fought on the weekend. He had his amateur MMA debut. I think he's fighting again in six weeks. So the approach changes, not just on the person, but there's so many factors. Um, bottom line is all of our athletes get tested, Dennis, and we look at the qualities that they need to work on. Generally speaking, outside of fight camp, so let's just say that eight to six weeks leading into a fight, our objective is to build those qualities, to build our athletes up. Into the fight camp stages, we tend to manipulate certain things in the training process so they can focus more on their sparring, more on their skills training. And then once the fight's over, we rewind that process. And over time, we ideally see a, an improvement in their physical qualities, as well as their weight cuts and the communication between teams and all those things. And I have to ask as well, like mentally, how, how hard is it to deal with these guys? Because I know some fighters, I mean, DJ's a classic example. He, he, he trains, but he's also a big gamer. He's very good at just being able to go home and switch off. Uh, I had Blake on last and he said he, he obsesses about fights, right? So, and I guess like sometimes then you kind of go, well, the shorter camps are probably better because you don't want to drive yourself nuts where you're saying now like potentially you know, he's known about this fight for the last six months. So do you ever have to like sit these guys down too and, and try to pull them out of obsessing about a, a fight? And and also do you find, I guess, more so with the strength and conditioning, um, you know, as you get closer to a fight, you start getting nervous and you want to kind of feel like, 
you're not leaving any stone unturned, but also there comes a point where you're overtraining, right? Like, do you ever have those sort of moments and how do you deal with that? So it's a good question. Some of our guys have, you know, a psychologist or coaches that they work with specifically for those things. Let's, let's look at the example that you gave me with George. George, is obviously, he's, he's at the highest stage. He does a very good job of tapering his own weeks and his sessions, and we do a good job communicating that together. So, yes, we knew he was fighting Lopez, but he did no sparring up until he just left for Miami two weeks ago, right? So that's a massive reduction in intensity and contact for several months. We had a bigger focus at the start on making George a little bit bigger for this fight because we knew Lopez was a slightly bigger opponent. Now, George goes overseas, there should be a natural shift in contributions from strength and conditioning training sessions to his skills training sessions. He's sparring twice a week now. He's doing more pad work with his coach. Everything's a bit more tactical. He's seven weeks out. So with some of our younger athletes, Dennis, we definitely sit down with them in the office and we'll have a chat about how they're feeling about the fight. And we just tend to deviate them from thinking that this is this massive event and there won't be any after this. So we, we like to get them into that, just creating good habits, you know, not having drastic weight cuts. And obviously we work with Jordy and the team there to help us with that. We talk about developing good habits and as soon as the fight's done, you know, we transition back into the gym. We have a certain type of block that we introduce the first one to two weeks back in the gym. So we just slowly increase the intensity and the volume back on the person, reduce certain amounts of load on the person. And then we transition back into our regular training process based on what that person needs to work on. The psychology of things, look, I definitely think that you need to be comfortable talking about things like anxiety, how the person's feeling for the fight, how they started visualizing things. But at the same time, I think a lot of the times what I do is I'll tell them, hey, like if I give you a suggestion of someone to work with, is this something you would like to do? I know a lot of my high level guys, they have a mental coach, whatever you want to call it, that they work with because they understand that if it's a 1% advantage they can get in terms of the anxiety arousal curve approaching a fight, it'll definitely help them. And you mentioned weight cuts. I, I have to ask you, what's your kind of opinion on, on, on weight cuts? Because I know when I spoke to Geordie, he was saying like he, he believes that in amateurs, you shouldn't be cutting weight at all because it really don't make any difference in, in that kind of space. Um, but I also feel like it's the amateurs that try to cut more weight yeah. than the pros, right? Because I, I, I guess because they see it happen all the time and they feel like it, it once again, it's, it's that mental thing where you're like, I'm trying to get every advantage I can. But like, you that's been through the process uh, a lot and 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 I, I guess you've probably seen good weight cuts bad weight cuts but what's your actual feelings towards weight cuts i think so in boxing you'll notice weight cuts weight cuts sorry aren't as um as drastic so the percentage weight loss for a boxing fight tends to be less than an mma fight and that's obviously because body weight in terms of size because of the nature of boxing and not being so grappling doesn't have as much as an advantage as it does in mma I've seen weight cuts done really well. I know some guys that we still work with that cut quite a lot of weight. And look, I think in the amateurs, I mean, I'm not a professional in this space. I think in amateurs, we still see a weight cut and that's fine. I think sometimes, you know, larger than five, 7% body weight weight cuts for an amateur fight is ridiculous. It's silly because like I said, the reality is they're fighting so frequently. If you're doing that so frequently, long-standing you're going to do like metabolic damage you're going to influence hormones negatively there are so many things repercussions that happen with doing that so frequently 
with some of the professional guys, the professional MMA fighters, I think staged controlled weight cuts that start with a good diet weeks out from the actual fight, that's how it should be done. So I think in terms of the misconceptions and some of the silly things that we've seen in the combat sports space, people like Jordan Sullivan, his team, the guys at the PI, they're starting to steer the industry or this community away from some of those taboo things that you've seen in the past and all those ridiculous videos that we've seen of people in bathtubs and saunas doing stupid things. And do you think um, if we, in the MMA space, if we added more weight classes, I guess the way you do in boxing, do you think that would solve some of the, the weight cutting issues or do you actually think it'll make it worse? I don't know if more weight classes are necessary. I think over time we'll see we'll see a gradual change as the as the industry increases in its professionalism and the resources available. I think we'll tend to see athletes that are more ready year round, which then places them in a position to not have to cut so much weight leading into a fight. If you're an athlete who competes as a welterweight, which is 77 on the day, and you let your weight skyrocket up to 95 when you're not competing, that's just silly. And I know some guys that let that happen, but the reality is that we touch base with them because we kind of understand where they need to be sitting if they want to take a fight. Is it our job to manage their weight? Not specifically. Is it our job, duty, or care to have the, an idea of the right weight they need to be sitting at for competition? 100%. The NRL do it, they have body scans, they do weight, game day check-ins, all those sorts of things. And I think... Uh, Having worked with guys like Jordy over the last few years, I think indirectly even, I'm just a bit more in tune with that process now. Crazy, crazy. And in regards to sparring, how do you feel about that? Because I, I know you mentioned before, like it does affect like, obviously what you do with the athletes Definitely. depending on the spar. But like, um, you know, you've had big names come out now like Max Holloway and say, look, they, they don't really enjoy the spar or they feel like it's not really necessary. And obviously, you know, they are at the highest levels. But are you a fan of sparring and, and, and how do you feel about it? Um, even to the sense, like I always say, like with MMA, they usually spar at a, at a, at a lighter rate. Um, when I see these boxes, they, they, they swing hill for leather. Like it's a totally different game, but like, do you, do you think it's healthy to spar? Like, cause I know over time now we're, we're getting to the space with CTE and stuff like that, where people are a little yep. more concerned. So what are your feelings about that? Look, my, from, from the people that I've listened to the understanding of things like concussion, um, is still quite a gray area. There's no definitive responses as to correlations between not doing something and having less chances of conceding things later on. But look, I think sparring is a, is a form of skills training that does need to happen. I think from what I've seen and continue to see, I mean, just the other day we spoke with an athlete who's sparring three times a week and that's insane. It's, it's as absolutely unnecessary. A lot of the more professional guys Dennis, that I speak to now, they understand that outside of a competitive period or fight camp, for example, they don't do any sparring. They might do some contact drills, but there's, there's no you know, high intensity contact sparring. And I think having that option as a fighter is very important. I think a lot of the times, particularly young fighters, there's this sort of aura that comes with sparring and you know, having, having that sort of session. I think the more you become professional in the sport and develop in the sport, you realize that there's a time and a place for it. Do I think that there's a difference between MMA and boxing sparring? Yes, I think boxing sparring can definitely be very, very different in terms of contacts conceded than MMA sparring. 
MMA sparring, you have the option of spending time on the ground. There's grappling exchanges. Boxing sparring, like you just said yourself, Dennis, a lot of the times it, it is there is no playing around at all. So I definitely think some of these younger boxers or these you know clubhouse boxing gyms need to just be a little bit cautious about the amount of sparring sessions their athletes are doing throughout the week. I know some boxing gyms that do you know sparring nights two, three times a week, weekly, whether you're competing or not. And I think, yes, it's good for specific skills training. I don't think two to three sessions a week is necessary. Yeah, it's crazy. I always say, like, with, with boxers especially, when you look at their amateur records, they usually, like, have 100 amateur fights. Then on top of that, like, as I say, every sparring session to me, apart from the fact that they're wearing headgear, is, like, it's a fight. Like, it's, like I literally see these guys swing for the fences, and it's, like, incredible. But you mentioned uh, clubhouse uh, boxing gyms. And uh, there's a little thing that I do every week, and, and that is to try to invite people in from a, an app called The Clubhouse. Oh, right, okay. So um, what, what it is, at the moment, we've got a couple of people sitting in there. I'll, I'll hopefully get a, a question or two. But like, I like to open up the lines and, and, and just see if there's someone that, that is potentially listening in that uh, might have a question or two uh, for you to answer as well. So we'll open the lines and see if anyone is out there. Maybe. Actually, they've just put their mic on mute, so maybe not. Um, but I wanted to ask you as well, uh, they, they might come back, they've just put their mic on mute. Um, I uh, wanted to ask you as well is um, one, one, one of the reasons I obviously got in touch with you, and this is a while back, and obviously with Geordie as well, we, we had a case with, with one of our fighters, Athena, um, do you have any sort of update with her right now? Yeah. Um, like, she's obviously training again now, but like, she had obviously quite a few surgeries from from what I gather. Like, what, what what's what's the latest with her? Look, in terms of legal standings, I'm not too sure. I definitely know that there's still some some legal case being taken, as there should be. Um, as for Athena's health, she's doing well. She's back into the gym. She's training. Um, obviously, I'm still working with her. She is still competing. She's already competed since her surgeries. So in, in terms of is she, does she have scars, all those sorts of things? Yes, definitely. I think she'll probably wear that for life. Um, is that unfortunate? 100% is negligence. It's absolute bullshit. Um, but otherwise, she's doing well. She's doing awesome. And I think um, if there wasn't a difficulty in finding opponents, I think she'd be fighting already. Um, but do you think, like, obviously with the scars, you're saying she'll yeah. probably have them for life, but... Last I heard as well was that she had to get muscle tissue removed. Correct. Um, is that something you can make a full recovery from? So no, I'm not talking about the superficial, as I say, the scarring. But do you feel like she's going to make a full recovery? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's it's not um it's not foreign taking tissue from other areas. You look at you know some ACL rehabs. They take hamstring tendon or a portion of the hamstring tendon and use that as a graft for the ACL. So th those procedures aren't foreign, and people make return to sport protocols all the time doing so. I definitely think that she can she can make a full return. No no hesitation. Cool cool. Now I guess with you, like what what's next for Ethos? Like I, I always I, like you obviously moved gyms recently. Yes. Um, um, is that a relocation or is that a, you've opened a separate gym now? No. So that was um, me contracting a space out of another facility to finally opening our own location, which is where we are now. The we're gonna be in this location. Well, we'll have this location for a while. Um, I've got a good standing time period there and we've just got an extension at that place also. 
So we'll definitely almost double the size in the next two years in that space. And what's next for Ethos is, like I said, Dennis, we understand that combat sports is growing and we've been there before the growth was so paramount. And our plan is to be the go-to place for combat athletes in Sydney um, to provide education and to increase the standards available to the combat athlete. Ultimately, because we care about the space and we understand that we have a lot to give in that space. And when you say um, the growth of MMA as well, do you see yourself growing? Like, I know at the moment you are Sydney-based, right? That's it. Correct. Um, do you see yourself expanding to the point where we'll see an ethos in Queensland? We'll see, or, or are you keeping it here? Like, I, I guess I'm asking for like national fighters. Like, uh, I kind of see that, you know, as Sydney fighters have a clear advantage in that space. Are you going to try to open the doors for, for fighters around the country? I think the Queensland market is nice. Um, so is Melbourne. Been thinking about Queensland for a while. Um, there's still a lot we want to do in Sydney, but definitely. Yeah, and, and is there, like, I, I guess, you know, it's always hard to say, but, like, when I sort of say, like, where do you see ethos in, say, 5, 10, 15 years? Yes. I would like to have a bit more impact domestically in other states in Australia, but I'd also like to hit the international market a little with fighters. And the part of the way we'll inject that space is through education, um, but there will be more on that to come in, in, in the next you know, 12, 12 to 15 months. That's, that's all I can reveal about that. You can't reveal a little bit more? <laughs> damn, damn. Well, look, what I, what I normally do um, at the end as well, I, I, I like to um, kind of ask, uh, I, I usually call it the fighter picks, but obviously with you, I'll, I'll, I'll just call it fight picks. Fight picks. Um, and I mean, the first one right now, and, and we spoke about him earlier today, is uh, Ty. He, he's obviously signed up to, to fight Greg Hardy. Yes. Um, are you liking that fight for him? How's he looking? Um, how, how, how is that training going? And how do you see that fight sort of uh, play out? So how's training going for Ty right now? So he spent a long time away from his son, just got out of quarantine. So I think we'll probably definitely won't see him this week. Um, hopefully next week we'll start getting back into some things with him. But at the moment, still don't know if he's going to head back to Dubai to do camp there or if he'll stay in Sydney. That's a decision he needs to make himself. So Ty versus Greg Hardy. I think um, Greg will try and come in strong. I think Ty is a lot more of a technical striker than Greg. So I think Ty will pick him apart with kicks. He'll pick his strikes nicely. He's a more mature fighter now. And Ty has a lot more experience against much better opponents in the UFC than Greg. And you were talking about, obviously, the two-week quarantine. I, I, I have to ask you your, your thoughts on that as well. Do you, do you see this, like, do you see this, like, travel? I mean, the last article I sort of read now is that we're looking at 2024 before, like, we go back to normal. Like, do you, do you see this being an ongoing problem? Because uh, I know, for instance, when I spoke to Josh, he was like, I was like, are you going to go to Fight Island again? He goes, not if I have to do quarantine. Like, it's literally like it puts fighters off. I mean, look, Dan Hook is a really big one with that too, right? Like, every every time he goes over, he's away from his family for months on end. Yeah. Um, yeah, do you, do you see light at the end of the tunnel at the moment or you think we're kind of like stuck in this space? I think the quarantine thing is something that we'll see for a while longer. For me, the fact that our athletes are able to go over there and compete, that's a blessing in itself. Um, it gives them an opportunity to continue to work on their career and make an income. 
So that that's a positive in itself for me. I don't think we're going to see the quarantine getting dropped anytime soon. Hopefully this bubble between New Zealand opens up some opportunities for UFC to have some um, New Zealand-based events that could be more appealing for our Australian fighters. Um, but as for, you know, things going back to normal, I think normal's context now. I don't mean what is going to be normal when it does go back to however else we think normal is going to be. So that's a different discussion, right? I don't think travel will ever be the same. I think it, it'll always be a bit more controlled now. And talking about the normal, is there things that you had to change in your gym? Yeah, so like I said, I think in terms of using the time, like we discussed with you and your podcast earlier, uh, it gave us an opportunity to put things online and to have some good online systems. So we work with a lot of fighters now online, guys in Queensland, pro MMA guys, pro boxers, amateur guys. And that, that whole time period gave us an ability to establish some online systems, take videos, do all the monotonous stuff like upload to YouTube, create channels, et cetera, et cetera. So we did that definitely. Um, it also gave me some time to structure an internship program, which we've been running. It's our third intake currently. Um, two of my staff came directly from the internships that we started running late last year, once Ethos opened up in August. So I think the time period was good, definitely for certain things to work on certain projects and obviously had its negatives in that we couldn't function physically as a gym space. But hopefully those, that's all behind us and now we can continue to grow and work on the things moving forward. And I and this is always like a topic that most people don't like to talk about, but I, I, I have to ask you, you, you just spoke about the online space. Social media, the social media presence, like, yes. you know, and especially I guess with gyms, like a, a lot of people don't like to talk about it because, you know, you'll get the people that literally go to the gym to have their social media posts. But I also know as a gym, yep. you guys are very active on your social media presence. Definitely. In today's world, like, are you a fan of social media? And, and how, and even if you're not, how important is it though for your brand, I guess, to have that presence? It's massive, Dennis. We have a whole campaign on our social media. So we have a schedule, we have videography that gets done. We communicate between our camera guy and having scheduled content, everything is structured. It's, it's, it's very important. We have so many leads that come in through Instagram. Um, I think in terms of branding and, you know, diversifying the audience and having a platform to share a message and to grow a community. It's very important. I think digital branding, um, you know, video, short image, uh, short videos, just captivating people digitally is, is the way businesses have to adopt now, particularly a gym space with so much of the action being inside a physical space. And do you have any phone policies in your gym? Like, or, or do you not have that issue because you are dealing with professionals? Most of the guys that come into our gym, they put their phones down and they start training. Um, if they want to tag themselves doing things, they, they can do it. It's fine. Um, yeah, we don't really have an issue with guys not working hard. We work with a lot of combat athletes and they probably tend to be the hardest working athletic population you'll meet. And on that note too, you, you said that obviously generates a bit of leads. I, I have to ask you, are you open to public or are you just a gym for, for, for these, these pros? So I've put up posts in the past that Ethos definitely is not a gym or a facility that only works with fighters. We work with several different athletes and even our combat athletes range from guys who haven't had their first fight yet to guys that are on the world stage that we all watch on TV. So that's the athletic population. And we also work with, I'd say, you know, a good 40 to 30 to 40% of our clientele base 
are non-athletes. And I think that's also what contributes to our unique environment. So definitely not. Yes, we are short on memberships available for people because we've hit capacity twice now. Um, but as our team grows and as our space allows, we'll have more membership opportunities available. But in saying that, no, not just available to athletes, available to anyone, any athlete. So long as they meet the criteria for the type of person we want to work with, they can work with us. And just because we have gone through this pandemic, I will just ask you, or maybe I'm just trying to get a cheeky free free session right now, but uh, for, for people at home, whether they're stuck in quarantine or whatever, what are, what are like five, I guess, and this is probably putting you on the spot, like because I know you deal with like a lot of uh, actual tools, whether they be weights or whatever, but yes. for, for people that are stuck at home, and I'm talking about the international audience as well, what are five kind of exercises that A, people should be doing okay. like in your opinion or b that like they can be doing right now because they can't be getting to gyms and stuff like that all right let's assume that you have some understanding of what to do um try and cover multiple planes of motions so let's stick with a squat let's stick with us a, a lunge um we'll do a, a push-up get a towel everyone has a towel so you can do some sort of table pulling variation and then we can do things like planks, side blanks, um, and all your gymnastic hollow sort of variations. And the overriding tip to make things harder at home with no weights is just to manipulate your tempos. Do things slower, do things with a hold at the bottom, get a towel, do things where you're pushing into a towel as hard as you can. Obviously, the towel's not going to go anywhere. So those would be, I went over five, I went six things that you can do whilst you have no equipment utilize a towel there's a lot you can do with a towel um while you're stuck at home well there you go um so yeah i i mean going going back to the picks i just got to get one which is a a boxing pick which is this weekend as well um i know you you probably know who it's gonna be uh, there's been a bit of an uproar is it gallon uh well, no, actually, I will talk about that one. That one too. Like, so, all right, we'll go that one first. Paul Gallon. Are we but, talking domestic boxing? Is that what we're talking about? No, I was more Because talking, I have my own opinions on domestic boxing at times too. I, I, I was more going to talk about international boxing. but Let's, let's do international. Okay, so, well, I don't even know if you can call it a boxing match. It's it's a celebrity boxing match oh, right no. now. There you go. Oh, you know who I'm talking yes. about. You got Jake Paul. You yes. got Ben Askren. There's a lot of debate. Ben Askren is like a professional fighter. Uh, something that Jake Paul's never faced. On the other side is he's a wrestler, obviously not a pure boxer. Yes. Um, how do you see that fight? Do you even like that fight? Are you buying into the fight? And yeah, how, how do you see it play out? Dennis, I'm not going to watch it. I'll watch some highlights when I jump on Instagram that day. Um, I think I have never actually seen any videos of... Um, What's his name? Paul? Is it? What's it? Jake Paul? Jake Paul. I've never I, seen one video of him. That's me how, neither. That's how. I, that's how much I don't tune into that. So I think Ben Askren will win just because he has an understanding of space and the requirements of combat in terms of striking. I think he's 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 been in the UFC. He's fought before, so I think he's done enough technical training to get past. I don't even know what this guy does. This Jake Paul guy. So I think Ben Askren should win. Um, well, he's a YouTuber. I don't know what that means, but he's a YouTuber. Mate, it's it's funny. You All I know is that George is going to be there and him and Tiafimo are going to have the official press conference. So I'm more excited for that. Okay. And then you you were the one who brought it up. I didn't even think of it. We'll, we'll probably finish it after this, but Paul Gallen versus Big Daddy Brown and 
you asked the question of yourself or you said you had an opinion on the local boxing scene. Yeah. I would like to know that opinion right now. I think the fact that we're seeing all these rugby league athletes transition into boxing is good for some of the boxers that they verse in that obviously Australia is very dominant in our rugby league culture and we have a big fan base who follow some of these athletes. So I think when a fighter fight someone like Paul Gallen, they get all the exposure that someone like Paul Gallen brings to that fight because he has a lot of rugby league fans. Now, is that good for the boxer fighting Paul Gallen? I think so. That person's probably going to make more money and get more exposure than they have before. It also means that some of these cards like Mark Hunt and Paul Gallen, some of the guys on the undercard who are actually good boxers, good local boxers, good talent, they get more exposure. Some of my boys have fought on those cards. Some of my girls have fought on those cards. So... I think for for those reasons, it's a good thing. For the reputation of Australian boxing internationally, I don't think it is the best thing. When we see Australia promoting so heavily different sports or retired athletes from a sport transitioning to boxing and almost treating it like a retirement package, um, that in my case is is where I stand with it. I think it's good for the domestic guys to get some some more exposure on those bigger cards. But as for the reputation of Australian boxing internationally, probably not the best thing. And the thing that amazed me with that that Mark Hunt fight, uh, as I said, is that you had Tim as the main event. And when I spoke to someone from the media, they were saying when when you're looking at clicks, like what's generating what, it was eighty percent Paul Gallen, Mark Hunt yeah. over Tim Sue, and and that. So I know you said it's great for the undercard because they're fighting on that car and get exposure. But like the thing where I, I kind of like have an issue with it is that they're actually generating more steam than actual boxes. Yeah. Right. And, and like I said, I think if you're, a, if you're a boxer fighting on that card, you'd leverage that steam for your own, for your own branding and for your own exposure. That, that's the way I see it. If you're a guy fighting on the undercard or you're on the pro card, of a gallon fight, a Mark Hunt fight, um, or some of these, you know, trivial boxing fights that Australian boxing is hosting, make the most of it. And how do you feel about Tim Tzu? You think he, he, he's going to make it on the world stage? I think Tim's proven himself against the opponents that he's had to so far. I'd like to see Tim, you know, now step up and fight some of the more international level guys who are in their prime. He's got a, a, a stacked division, um, internationally so i think they've played their cards right for tim so far they've built up they've built up his profile they've gotten him a ranking he's fought a lot of the domestic guys so yeah i think i'd like to see him fight internationally now i think the route that the australian boxing will take is bringing opponents for tim to fight in australia and not so much get tim to fight outside of australia that that's what i personally think and i also think at the moment i don't know if it's him i don't think it's him pushing it but someone's pushing the michael fight um, Zarafa. There's a Rafa fight. Yeah. So look, I think that's a good fight. I think Michael Zarafa is a good boxer. That's a good domestic fight. Again, I don't think it's the caliber of what they will, either of them will have to verse if they take any of the top six um, rankings internationally. Like I said, um, I think right now, unfortunately, George probably isn't getting the amount of exposure he deserves in the country um, for, for boxing. George is about to fight Lopez for the undisputed world title. It's probably the largest or the most, you know, uh, standing boxing fight in Australian boxing history. If George wins this or when George wins this, it's going to be massive, massive. And I think, unfortunately, we're not seeing as much exposure from George in Australia because he is in Australia. 
I respect George a lot, Dennis. Um, he's left his family, new baby on the way to go on, you know, take it to the champion and fight him on home turf. And I think George right now, without a doubt, is the boxing icon in the country. Do you know, though, going back to what we spoke about before going into em uh, em uh, enemy territory? Yeah. Um, is he is he going over there to finish that? Like, is that his mentality that like he he can't let it go to to the scorecards? He can let it go to the scorecards. He beat Selby in the UK in the scorecards. I think it's fine. But what George has to do in this fight is execute the game plan that they've put together. Is Lopez beatable? One hundred percent. I think um I think Lomachenko can beat Lopez. I think he was a bit stagnant for the first six rounds in that boxing fight and started to kick things up a little bit too late. I think Lomachenko can beat Lopez. Lopez doesn't seem to be the most skillful boxer. He's extremely powerful, extremely explosive. He's quite big for that division also. I definitely think that if George sticks to the game plan, he can beat Lopez without a doubt. And the last thing I'll take from you is, do you think Australia combat sports, whether it be MMA or uh, or boxing, I was going to say basketball. I say basketball. Yeah, <laughs> basketball, combat sports. Um, do you think it's the best it's ever been right now? Short answer, yes. Our, the Oceania wave has been massive. If we look at, you know, the amount of champions coming out of New Zealand, Australia, the amount of fighters getting signed. I think Australian boxing has had a resurgence. We've got some big names. I mean, you know, obviously Tim's doing well. He's got an international presence. George, like I said, he's an absolute icon right now. Just about the highest paid combat athlete in Australia. So I definitely think with all the all that's going on, we've got a champion, Volkanovski. Last 10 years, we just had our champion, Whitaker. Um, you know, Arlene just fought Cyborg. I mean, we'll take Izzy as well. 100%. Like um, in, 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 in that oceanic circle, the wave is definitely circulating around Australia. And I think that's why Australian combat sports is getting more coverage now. Um, and then, I mean, if you look at the amount of UFC events that had happened in Australia, obviously before COVID, there were heaps. And the frequency was only getting more. So, yeah, I definitely think that right now, Australia, Oceania has its a wave of combat sports going. And I think it's going to be a long, a long but short 10-year wave that we're going to see combat sports skyrocketing, particularly mixed martial arts and boxing. All right, and, and, and one more on that. Just <laughs> one more. Um, just because you see a lot of young guys coming through the system as well, yep. who do you think... In general, just put it out there, positive energies. Who do you think that is one name that people need to look out for? Not your Tim Zoos, not like something that most people will be like, who? Like, basically, I want to who, right? Who, who, whether they, and they don't even have to come through ethos, whether they did or didn't, but like, who have you seen that you see a little bit of that, that, that it factor that you're like, you know what? In the next five years, I see them making waves. I'm going to ramble some quick names. So Colby trains with Alex Volkanovsky. Young guy. He had his pro debut. He's a good guy to watch out for. Awesome person. Good athlete. Um, that's one. One of the boys that works with us, Mater Ian, amateur MMA fighter. Very, very good attitude. I don't care about his physical qualities or his skills. I look at his attitude, and I think if he can keep that attitude moving forward, it would definitely be something to look out for. We've got so many young boxers that work with us at the gym um, and they all know who they are. So I think those two names would be enough for now in the MMA space, in the boxing space. He just had a loss, but Kawan Mazudia is definitely one of the icons that will come up in Australian boxing. Um, he had a tough loss a couple of weeks ago, but he'll be back. Uh, we work with Dara Foley, who just had the fight of the year last year against Ty Telford. 
I think Australian boxing should give Darrell Foley a good fight next. It's what he deserves. So, but yeah, Darrell's already a name. He's uh he's not in his twenties anymore. So those names will do right now for some of the young guys. Perfect, perfect. Well, look, man, like uh, I, guess, I guess this is where we're going to kind of wrap it up. Um, for, for people that want to kind of check out Ethos and, and see what you guys are actually about, like what, what's the kind of best way for them to either get in contact with you? Where are you guys situated? Um, yeah, or if they have any sort of questions, like do they hit you up on the personals or on the Ethos? What, uh, what, yeah, what's the best way of, for people to kind of reach out? Sounds good. Locations, our uh, hub center, our main location is... Uh, 36 Egerton Street in Silverwater. Um, our pop-up location that we work at at Mascot is at Emerge Mixed Martial Arts. Our website is ethosperformance.com.au. And if you want to reach out on social media, it's probably where we're the most active. Um, my personal Instagram tag is just my full name, me, Ernie, and the Ethos Performance Instagram tag is ethosperformanceau. Perfect. Well, look, I, I can't thank you enough, and I will just correct you. It, it's me underscore Alni. Um, so I'll, I will just put that out there. But uh, look, man, I really appreciate the time. As I said, you, you're definitely doing some great things because uh, as I say, I mean, the people that you have is, is, is it speaks for itself. Like, as I said, like, I don't think there's anyone in Sydney in the combat sports area that isn't hitting up ethos. Like, and as I said, like, I, I, I wasn't sure if you were like, putting something in the water and, and, and really fixating on that. But like, I, I appreciate the time. I know you're busy and I'm going to let you get out of here. But once again, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, until next time, stay blessed. I'm away. I'm away.